We're here. We're doing weighing in. Here we are again. What is this? Week number four? Five. Be week five. Week five. Really? Damn, time goes by. Damn. It's been, man, it's been fun. Five weeks with you. Here with Big John. Everyone, obviously, everyone knows Big John. I don't need to really give the introduction, but Big John McCarthy and uh, myself, Josh Thompson. But, uh, all right. We were talking a little bit off air. I want to talk more about the, the whiskey. You got all the whiskey behind you. Let's, let's just talk. Let's just talk. I mean, you're, let's go. You, I saw the proper 12 earlier and you're like, yeah, that, that's, that, that stuff is shit. But like, <laughs> we, we were talking, you pulled out the Jameson's crested. What? I have no idea about whiskey. I don't drink whiskey. Uh, I don't have enough dead uh, taste buds to drink whiskey. I think I heard what? they, I heard they all die dead later taste on. Buds. Yes. They, they heard they die later. And that's when you start to enjoy whiskey is when they're more, more of your taste buds die. That's what I've heard. You know, Nah, no, nah, look at you know what? Every whiskey is has got there's so many varieties of whiskey and people don't understand whiskey. And whiskey's got like you've got Kentucky bourbon, that's a whiskey. Yeah. And then you got Tennessee whiskey, which goes through another distilled process. And then you go into Scotch, which is another Scotch whiskey that goes through another process. And so it just depends on, you know, what you like and how harsh you like it. But uh, Jameson's is famous from Ireland. That's yeah. what, you know, proper 12 is Conor McGregor's and he's working against that. And look at his advertising and what he's doing, man, he's killing it. Yeah. But Jameson's is definitely the number one Irish whiskey. I think there is crested is one that you can't get here in the States. You can buy it in Ireland, but you cannot buy it here in the States. So that, that bottle that you see that came from Ireland and I'm a, I give it out sparingly because I have to get back to Ireland where you're going, so I'm gonna have you buy me a bottle yes. of Crested and carry that sucker over. I would love to do that for you. It might be a couple of drinks missing because I want to see what all the hype is about. <laughs> and that's okay. You can do that. I have no problem with that. <laughs> oh man, I'm excited to go because I want to do the Jamesons tour out there. You guys did that last time you guys were there, right? Yeah, you, if you, you know what, if you're gonna go do the Jameson tour, you have got to do what's called the Shaker class. Okay, which is they actually teach you how to make drinks like a whiskey sour an old-fashioned they're going to teach you how jameson does it and stuff yeah. you sit there and make the drinks and you drink them and stuff and it's wow. a good time and, and you, you actually learn and it's fun and it tastes great good now now i just need to remember that take the shaker class go there now i'm supposed to do the I'm supposed to do the jameson and the guinness tour all in one day that's gonna be a rough day uh, that's a rough day <laughs> i i was told that i should do the jameson first Cause that's when you need to actually have still taste buds and then go to the Guinness and beer is beer kind of thing. You know, obviously it's going to taste good, but you know, Guinness is get everyone enjoy the Guinness, but the Jameson's where you really want to make sure that you're a little bit more. Yeah. Sober. You know, the one thing you're going to learn about the Guinness is man with Guinness. It's, it's all about how it's poured and how it's prepared. Cause there's a system to it Yeah. and they'll teach you the system and you'll see a lot of places in the States you know, if you order a Guinness, they just bang yeah. it out, hand it to you, and that's not the way you do a Guinness. And you'll there's something I don't know why I can't tell you why, but there is a difference between having a Guinness here in the states yep. and there in Ireland. So when I lived up in Idaho, I remember there was a bunch of different ways that I'd seen people pour it. I just seen them pour it right out of the tap, just straight into the cup, which I, I obviously is not the right way. I've also seen and, them, yeah, I've also seen them put a a bent spoon. And they slow pour it over the bent spoon. I've seen that. Okay. And then I've also seen them like put something in it. It's like a little bit of a, like a mushroom that they put on the inside of the cup and they pour it over that. And then they pull the mushroom out at the end. 
So it's Dude, funny. don't it's put any funny. mushroom in my beer. No fruit in beer. No mushrooms in beer. No, they pull the mushroom. It's it's like it looks like a mushroom, but it's like a it's like a steel. It's almost like serves the same purpose as the spoon, where it kind of slurp pulls over the side of it into the cup. But I don't know yeah. who who knows, man. No, nah, man, you know, you take it and they're gonna pour it. They're gonna pour just about that much yes. into it and let it sit, and then they're gonna come back and re-pour again and let it sit, and then pour that last bit. I don't know why. It makes a huge difference. You let the beer sit for a little bit, then you drink it, and it's one of the best experiences there is. See, for me, I like to step awesome up, stuff. I like to step up to the bar and say, "Yeah, can I get two beers? Can I get them now, though? Not in like thirty minutes." <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the difference, man. Yeah, you know, you're in a rush when yeah. you're my age. Everything is slow it down. You're in that rush right now. Oh man, <laughs> I'm not quite at that age yet, so I'm gonna enjoy the speed exactly. for as of right now. Uh, <laughs> Hey, um, uh, there was a couple things. There's only two things I really wanted to chat with you about um, uh, this week. And this week is I had a ton of people reaching out to me saying like, hey, I watched Eddie Alvarez and Demetrius Johnson's fight. But I noticed that he weighed in at 170, but he fights it lightweight. Yep. And I know you, this is your, this is obviously, this is, this is definitely your area of expertise. Talk to me. Like we know why they're doing this now is because they had, they had a fighter die, uh, over there, um, from cutting weight from, you know, and so I would like to know, like, how are they doing this? I, I don't like, is, are they, are they regulating it every week? Are they regulating it like every day? Are they doing it early in the camp and then doing it every, like, how are they regulating this? Well, what they're doing, and let's give a little background on why yeah. 1FC went to this weight uh, issue and, and did something about it. And I commend them for what they did because it's a serious problem within the sport. They had a fighter, a Chinese fighter. His, I, I don't want to say his name wrong, but it's uh, Zhang Bang. Mm -hmm. But he died. He's 35 years of age. He died from the weight cut. Now, we've had other fighters that have died from weight cuts. And because, you know, there, there's that whole thing about, you know, when we've talked about this many times, Josh, it's about, you know, these guys thinking they want to be the bigger, stronger fighter. But when you look at what is it that I worry about, I worry about fast guys. And you got this bigger, stronger guy going into a lighter weight class. Usually the speed is what's the problem for them. And it doesn't work in the fashion that they think it's going to work. Now, that's, you know, it's easy to say, but it's hard to get people to understand it and to get on board with it. But what 1FC did is once they had one of their fighters die, they said, all right, this weight cutting has got to stop. We can't have this. It doesn't look good. Now, the one thing they have going for them is they are a promotion similar to a promotion of the UFC, Bellator, uh, PFL, but they don't, they don't have any regulatory function over them. They don't have athletic commissions. So when they, when they sit there and they say, okay, we're going to have you weigh in at 170 pounds, but you're a 155-pound fighter, they can do that, mm -hmm. okay? You can't do that with regulation. The athletic commissions don't look at it the same way. They won't do it the same way. But what 1FC went and did is they went and said, all right, what is it that we need to do? First thing they did is they started having their fighters actually come and show and log their weights every day. And then at the end of the week, they would do a login on a computer, go over the fighter's weights. Now, could the fighter lie? Yeah, the fighter could lie. But they actually gave the fighters, uh, it's called a refractometer. That's a 
piece of equipment that can actually measure the amount of water in your urine. Okay, because when you're looking at urine, and I'm, I'm getting into the, the scientific aspect like I'm a doctor here, but I'm not. But when you look at urine, I want you to think of, uh, you know, if I'm looking at it, it's going to be 1.000. Okay, that is going to be basically a very hydrated person. 1.000. Now, if you get to 1.002, you're, you're still very hydrated. But if you get up to 1.000, three zero so 30 on mm -hmm. on the scale basically you're now a dehydrated f person got it and it can go beyond that and what happens is you know you know when you're working out and you're taking in a lot of water and you go to pee i mean it just comes out of you fast and it's almost clear mm -hmm. but when you're cutting weight and you start to cut too much you're going into the kidneys and you're doing things that are making the kidneys start to shut down your blood is starting to thicken and become almost mud-like. Mm -hmm. And all of these things will come out when you when you pee onto a refractometer or a specific gravity strip. It's going to show that there's not enough fluid in your pee. It has too high of, of a urine or uratic uh, substance to it. And that says you are a dehydrated person, a person that they would now start thinking of giving a IV to even though IVs under 1FC are not allowed. So the whole, the whole point is they want their fighters to always come in hydrated, and that's a great thing. You know, where I don't know exactly where their break-off is in, from that 1.000 to what point are they saying, okay, now you're dehydrated. I don't know what the number is for them. It could be, you know, it could be that 0 0.020, we'll say, but... That is telling fighters, hey, I've, I've got to be a hydrated person, and that's only a safety factor for them in the fights. Because when I, talk, I talked a little, a little bit of, uh, to Eddie Alvarez, and he was talking to me about the fact that his first fight there, he had a hard time with all the check, the weight check-ins and the hydration piss tests and just getting on a schedule, and it kind of threw him off that first week. Now, he's not making that as an excuse to why he lost that fight. But I feel like yeah. now he's gotten into the groove. He looked a lot better this last fight, got the win in the first round. But um, is this something where they have to spend more time dieting down throughout their camp to make it easier for them to stay hydrated and get their weight actually down during their camp? Or are they just strictly just saying, hey, I'm fighting at 170, but it's just going to be considered a lightweight fight? Well, I want you to think of yourself as a fighter and where you fought at was 155. Mm -hmm. what, what were you in the gym two weeks away from your fight? What was your weight? 170. There you go. So yeah. were you hydrated at that point two weeks before your fight? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Were you starting to just cut down on crap as far as your intake of food? You would still eat a lot, but you just started not eating the bad stuff. You started eating just healthier food. And you're, you're taking in a ton of water, but you're at 170 pounds. And that's what they're looking at. Because look at this whole thing comes down to, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, if you step on the scale and you're 155 pounds and a day later, you're 170 pounds and your opponent does the same thing. Why are we making this fighter go through that cut yeah. when it only endangers their health and safety? So one FC has looked at it and said, you know what? We're not going to, we're not going to put the fighter through that. Now, we have to go through all of these steps to kind of make it to where the fighter has to follow this rule and make sure that they're doing the right things in keeping themselves safe because 
is there someone that would try to cheat? Sure, there is. That's just the way you know guys are. That you know, if they see a, just a, a loophole, an avenue that they can make something that could possibly give them an advantage in the fight, mm-hmm. they're going to take it. So that's why One FC is having to go through all of this stuff that Eddie is talking about, all of these checks, all of this, you know, the skyping on calls, all of the refractometer readings and everything that are being done before that fight. That's because, you know, guys in, in the end, if given the chance to cheat, a lot of them would. So can they not exceed a certain amount of weight after they weigh in? You know, it's the whole point is they have that weigh in because that's the weigh in that they're talking. This is our 155. We say that a guy that is 155 as a fighter would weigh normally 170 pounds. Mm -hmm. That's what they're giving that jump off to, just like you had it. Now, are there guys that took that and made it even more? Yeah, there are guys since, you know, Gleason Tebow, he was probably 180, 85 pounds. Same with, you know, Thiago Alves, another guy that carried a lot of weight. You know, but they were dropping huge amounts yep. of weight and then not being able to get all of that fluid back in their system. And that's unhealthy because, you know, we're not only talking about, look at the weight cutting came from wrestling. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the only people that cut weight are wrestlers and jockeys, basically. All right. Because there's a weight that goes with that. So wrestlers for years cut massive amounts of weight to get down into that lower weight class. And then we had several deaths that occurred. And with those deaths, the NC2A came back and said, all right, this is it. We've got to do something to stop what these guys are doing. And they made changes, and those changes have been good. They've made the sport a lot safer, a lot healthier. But the one thing on top that we have over what, like, you know, the NC2A has as far as wrestling is, we're not just wrestling. We have strikes to the head. Mm -hmm. And the brain is housed in fluid. Yep. And, you know, if you get if you want to get deep into that, you have that skull and then you have this thing called a dura Mm -hmm. and the dura lies between the skull and the brain. And then you have the brain. Well, when the brain starts to actually shrink due to dehydration, you get all these capillaries in between the brain and the dura that start to stretch out. And when they stretch, the brain gets jostled. Those little capillaries burst. And now you can have bleeding. And normally the dura protects the brain by being on top and almost cauterizes it with a pressure. But if you've lost so much weight that you can't have that pressure, now we have the problem that we could have a subdural hematoma and we could have a death. Well, so now that you're bringing that up, do you think that's a big reason why TJ got knocked out so easily? Because TJ has been known to have a great... Absolutely not a doubt in my mind. I have said for years, look, all these guys that are cutting massive amounts of weight, it has an effect on your ability to take a shot. Yeah. It just does. And I, I can't tell you scientifically why. You know, years ago, you know, Josh, you know, back in the beginning of MMA, if I took a doctor and I said, hey, doc, I got a guy. He gets hit with a shot and he goes out. All right. And if you hit him with another shot, could that bring him back? Yep. That doctor would have looked at me and said, no way, man. Are you crazy? It's just going to intensify that. Well, what do we know now? Yes, it yeah, can. It's happened to me a couple that times. Signal, <laughs> you know, that signal, it gets interrupted, but it can it can be shoved back together too, and that happens in fights. So when you look at what happens with guys that lose a lot of weight, I have seen people that I think have lost too much weight get touched with a shot, and they go out. Now, 
I'm not saying I've been there through their training camp. Maybe they were hurt in training camp. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of things that can go on. But it's never, ever good for the person that loses too much weight when they get touched with a decent shot, especially one that ends up hitting them somewhere around the ear, snaps their head, just that, that jolt. It always seems to disrupt them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> did you happen to catch anything that went on earlier this week with the uh, Dana White and Chris Cyborg stuff? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about it? <laughs> so I actually I actually played go- uh, golf today with Coker and we uh, we had a couple conversations. And one of the biggest conversations that we had was regarding Chris Cyborg and the, and the comments made by Dana White. I'm going to go ahead and let Scott ha- say what he's going to say, you know, regarding Dana yeah. and, and that type of stuff. And that may come to that may come to a head this week sometime. But. To touch on what I feel like needs to be said is Dana does what Dana does. Dana's a promoter. Dana's job is to discredit everything that she's done to show that whatever she's doing moving forward, it's never going to be as good as what she could have done here in this organization. That's Dana. But, and that, that's a promoter's job. Let's not, I, and, and everyone knows that everyone that's listening to this show probably knows I don't have a great relationship with Dana White. Okay. And, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> but, <laughs> The, the, here, the thing here. I'm, I'm shedding yeah. a tear right now. <laughs> the thing that I'm going to say, though, is that these not just her as a female and as a as a woman fighter or, and, and as a fighter in general, or as an athlete, all athletes, especially I think fighters, especially her who lays who lay it on who's laid it on the line so many times. She hasn't lost a fight since 2005 and she's fought the who's who and everyone that they've ever put in front of her. So for me to for him to say that she wants to go fight easier fights. That's not her. That's not her at all. It's never been her. She's always wanted the best fights. And and I'm not I don't even know if she's going to end up coming to Bellator, you know. They've got obviously got to work out contracts and negotiations, but I would love to have her there and you know I'm sure you would too. She is an yes, abs- I would. she is an absolute doll. She's an amazing person. She is such a genuine person and she is someone that I just has an infectious personality when you get to talk to her. And I just, and people don't get to see that side of her. And the one thing that I want to say is she is a female, she is a female fighter, and she is someone that has always given everything she's ever, she's always given it her all in that cage. Every fight she's given it her all. And I feel like Dana, what he did is he not only, like I get the promotion side of him saying those things, but oh, there's yeah. been other things that he has said that has discredited her as a female and as a fighter. And I feel that fighters, especially her, need to be given, need to be shown a little bit more respect. And for a promoter to do that, to me, that's that was, if you want to hit the low of low of what you could have said or done, the stuff that's come out of his mouth re- with regards to her is uh, is hideous. It's horrible. It's um, it's It's disgusting. You know, and I'm not just... Yeah. It, and I don't know how to get into it any further than that, other than the fact that I understand the promotion side of it, and I get that. But what he did beyond that is, uh, you know, from from the Vanderlei Silva um, correlation, trying to you know relate the two and in the dress, and 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 then, and then you know obviously there were some other comments made by some other people, you know, that weren't weren't very nice either, that still work for that promotion, and it's just I feel that if anyone deserved a little bit of respect, as far as in terms of who she's willing to fight at any time, any moment, there's no doubt in my mind that she wants that fight with Amanda Nunes. And f- for that to be said about from Dana White, 
it's it really it really bothered me. It bothered me for the way he put things and the way he came across and and um like I said, I've I've filmed shows with her. I've done TV commercials for, for with her for Showtime, and she almost uh, murdered me in the in the in the ring one time filming a commercial. I was like, "Hey, take it easy. <laughs> this isn't live. This isn't live." And so it it, it kind of bothered me. It bothered me a little bit. I wanted to bring that to light and just figure out how these negotiations ended up turning out to be the way that they did. You know, it was it was kind of upsetting to me, but in the same token, I know that he's a promoter. He's doing what he's got to do, but in the same turn, she's a she's a She's an athlete, and she is someone that's laid on the line. She deserves the utmost respect in the fact that she's fought everybody in the who's who in the women's division. And let's not forget that there would really be no women's MMA without her and Gina Carano. And I, I, I like to piggyback Misha Tate on that, too, because she was in that mix during that whole time. But let's yeah, be real. And, and Marlos Kunin also. Those, those four girls, I feel like, are the ones that kind of help catapult women's MMA into where it is now. You know? And... She's still doing it. She's still doing it really damn well. And uh, I just want to—I want her to have the very best. But I mean, I wanted to get your take and what your perspective on it was. I, w- I want to bring up certain points here because there's so much misinformation out there. That, that's the part that cracks me up about this because the media—I'm I'm, going to get on top of all the media people that are putting out reports of, well, Chris, you know. She's, you know, at certain times has had problems making 145 pounds. Never. Not once. Not once. The only time Chris ever had problems making weight was when she was forced to try to make 140 pounds for the UFC when they decided to bring her from Invicta as the Invicta featherweight 145-pound champion. And then they said, "All right, we, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna try to get her down to 135 to fight in their bantamweight since they didn't have a featherweight." And they yeah. truthfully, you look at the people that you know they've had that are true featherweight fighters. They just don't have a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they had Chris. She's a true featherweight fighter. They had the girl she just fought, Felicia Spencer, outstanding young featherweight fighter. Megan Anderson, that's a featherweight fighter. Now they've had girls that have gone up in weight from bantamweight into the featherweight division to fight at that weight. You know, Jermaine Duranami did it. Holly Holmes did it. Uh, Yana, I can't even say her, like Kunistova or whatever it was, she did it. They've had a lot, but they were 135ers going up. So Chris had problems in her, in her first fight at 140 against Leslie Smith making weight. She made it, though. And then she had real problems, and the video came out of her having severe problems making the weight to fight Lena Landsberg. But at no time has she ever had a hard time making 145. She has always made it, made it successfully, never a problem. So I hear that talk about, well, maybe you know, you know, it's because she's having a hard time making weight, and they don't want the the problem of that. That's bull. Yeah, that's never happened. When you get into promote promoters, look at promoters are there to promote not anybody else but somebody that is under their house, okay? And if Chris is not under Dana's realm, he's going to try to make her, you know, sound like well she was a good fighter at one time, but she's you know she's getting up in age and you know she's not fighting the same and she doesn't have the same skills as my girl does, and. You know, I can understand her wanting to go and fight against lesser competition. Well, that's just, uh, it's an outright, you know, 
it's a it's a statement that's not true. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I don't blame Dana for saying it because he's got to minimize everything that is happening for his promotion with the loss of one of the very best female fighters that has ever stepped inside any cage, wherever it is, ring, cage, I don't care. She's got two losses in over 20 fights. She has fought, like you said, everybody that they could put in front of her. She made a mistake against Amanda Nunez, and Amanda is that girl that, look at, she's so good that you can't make a mistake against her. But I can bring up fights that, you know, I've done, I've been the referee, and Amanda Nunez is lost. Okay, she has had to learn from her mistakes. And Chris, throughout her entire run here, she lost her very first fight ever due to a submission and then went on an incredible 20-some fight win streak and then loses to Amanda. Well, you learn from losses and you learn. This is where I made a mistake. I, you know, I rushed things. I didn't do things right. So Amanda had her time to learn from those losses that she's had. And now Chris is learning from that loss that she had against Amanda. Does that mean that Amanda would beat her the next time? Possibly, possibly not. You know, they're two great fighters and they're going to equal each other out. Who makes the mistake? Who's able to establish their plan in the fight is usually the one that's going to come out on top. But when you sit there and you minimize what Chris has done for the sport of women's MMA, that's a big mistake. Because as you said, look, at I understand that Dana came into the game of women's mixed martial arts very late. Okay, yeah. and when I say that, you know, this was back at UFC 157 was the very first female fight in the UFC. That was Ronda Rousey against Liz Carmouche. I did it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and that was late in the game. How, how many years had Scott Coker been putting on women's MMA? How many years before that had Jeff Osborne with hook and shoot been doing women's MMA? There, there are women out there that have been fighting for a very long time. Roxanne Modafari, she's been fighting forever. There was a girl named Jennifer Howe. What a stud she was. There just wasn't any competition for her. But when Scott Coker made the decision to put two women in the main event of the Strike Force event, that was Gina Carano against Chris Cyborg, that was a huge statement to everybody that a promoter would put that fight as the main event. That was long before... You ever saw that Ronda Rousey versus Liz Carmouche? Now, finally, Dana gets on board. Women's MMA is actually good. These girls fight. They're really good at what they do. They put on great shows. So all of it, you know, he's been trying to cover his tracks for a long time. He was trying to, you know, make sure that he had his golden child in Ronda Rousey, and I don't blame him. She was that good and that dominant for for a while but trust me, he didn't want her fighting Chris Cyborg. No, that was a fight he did not want. It was Lorenzo Fertitta that signed Chris Cyborg. It wasn't Dana White. So Lorenzo wanted to bring her into the UFC. Dana really didn't want to bring her in. And for some reason, don't ask me why, that's kind of just been that underlying current with their relationship. And, you know, if I just look at it, we are all human and we can all make mistakes. And, you know, if you sit there and you can't sit there back and look and say, hey, you know what? If I hurt your feelings, even if I didn't mean to, I apologize. I'm yeah. sorry. That's not what I meant to do. Yeah. That's what that's what people do. 
You know, I just saw that Chris had something come out on her, you know, YouTube page or something showing a conversation between her and Dana and her people went and added something to it that wasn't really there. And immediately when she finds out, she goes and she contacts the media, says, hey, this was done by my people. I am responsible and I want to apologize to Dana White. How come she has the ability to say, I'm sorry, and it doesn't come back from the other side? I feel like the UFC, doesn't make sense. I feel like the UFC loses credibility, and I've, they've lost credibility a couple times, but when you want to say you have all the best fighters in the world, and let's not, look, I, I work for Bellator, but let's be real. UFC is really the biggest company in the world. With as many no shows as they it. do, there's no way to, to, to go around that, but... I feel like they lose credibility when they lose fighters like Gegard Mousasi and they lose fighters like Chris Cyborg. They lose these people that are on the uptake and to, to other promotions because their pride gets in the way and they don't want to do business. How can you say you have all the best fighters in the world when things like this happen? Well, you know, the one thing that that, you know, in saying you have all the best fighters, that's that's for you want to put that out for the fans. Yeah. Because you have a lot of people that, you know, look at, they are, they're not MMA fans, they're UFC fans. And that's okay. You know, I'm not going to sit here and bash on that. That's, I give the UFC credit for being able to accomplish that. They became the Kleenex yeah. of MMA, meaning, you know, it's a tissue, but everyone calls it a Kleenex. So they sit there and they say that. The, the fact is this. You know, as a fighter, every time you went into AKA, whether you were fighting for the UFC or you're fighting for Bellator, you go and you work out with people. Fighters will tell you, look it, there is no difference between the top people in the UFC and the top people in Bellator. Yeah, None. They're, they are the same. The, the difference, and I will admit to this, I believe this is the difference between the two organizations. Bellator is deep about six down. Yep. The UFC is deep about 15 down. So they have more fighters. They have more quality fighters overall. But those numbers create a problem for them in the fact that they can't get those fighters fights all the time where Bellator is able to give those top six more fights, get them those, those fights, get them paid for it. So who do you want to be with? Sometimes you got to look and say, hey, I can't worry about the, the letters there. I got to worry about me and I got to worry about taking care of my payments and I need to get paid. So I need to fight. So this is going to work out better for me. And that's what I, that's what I know. A lot of guys going to Bellator have done. Yeah. I agree. All right, man. Well, Hey, that's our show today. We're going to wrap this one up. We're trying to keep this on a track that we've talked about. <laughs> Pretty good. Shorter. We're, we're, we're doing it. Shorter. We're doing it. So I'll let you get back to your whiskey and, uh, <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll touch base this week and we'll talk about our uh, next week's show. Sounds good, brother. You take care of yourself. Take care, man. It's nice seeing you again. I'll talk to you soon.